Matthew chapter 5 this morning. Bye, children. We've been preaching through the Beatitudes. Jesus is delivering the Sermon on the Mount. In chapter 5 here, he's sharing principles. Remember, a Beatitude was a a supreme blessing from God, a powerful blessing. And the, the blessing was that when we took the principle that Jesus was laying out for us, if we applied it to our lives, we would be blessed by it. There was a reward attached to it. How many like uh, to be rewarded? Amen. If you don't like to be rewarded, then at the end of the week, just tell your boss to keep your paycheck and that, you know, have a good week. Oh, we work and we strive and we produce. Why? Because there's a reward attached to things. And God knows that because he made us that way. And through every one of these principles that we would apply to our lives, and as we look at them, some of them are difficult and some of them are uh, not what we would desire, but there is a blessing attached to being obedient. And there's an internal reward attached to each one of these I'm going to just bless the word here, read you the Beatitudes this morning. Our target verse is verse 6. Holy Spirit, we thank you for the beautiful time of worship in both services. Lord, I pray that you prepared our hearts to receive the word. God, we know that worship and the word work together. And so, Holy Spirit, open up the word to us this morning. Help us each to find something from your heart that we can apply to our lives, that we can relate to, and that can stretch us and change us. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Matthew chapter 5, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up to the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. There again, our verse for the day, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And this uh, principle starts off here, this beatitude starts off uh, with a structure that we see all throughout the beatitudes, a blessing attached to what? Hungering and thirsting for righteousness and the result is that will be filled. Again, the blessing comes from something that at face value is less than desirable. Remember all of these start off, we talked about, you know, blessed are those who mourn and, and nobody wants to mourn. Blessed are the meek and, and meekness is seen as weakness in our culture. Blessed are the poor in spirit. No Nobody wants to be poor. No one wants to be spiritually poor. Yet we see that the themes of each of these at face value are not very appealing. And this one probably to us as a culture is the less appealing of all. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Say what? Right. Hungry? Hungry is something that most of us really can't relate to. My, my father used to say to me when I was young, if I didn't want to eat my dinner, if you're hungry enough, you'd eat that. 
But most of us have not experienced hunger to the point where we'll just eat anything. In fact, we are so blessed and even so spoiled that we don't just decide, are we going to have dinner tonight? We say, what do you want for dinner? Do you want pizza? Do you want Chinese food? Do you want Italian? Do you want steak? Do you want to go out? Now everybody looks real serious. Yeah, let's talk about this. And the thing is, we are so blessed because most of us don't ever get to experience hunger. But yet, here Jesus is using this imagery of hunger, and it's something that gets our attention because he's saying that we have to hunger and thirst for righteousness. You know, the reason that we don't like hunger, we don't desire hunger, and it's the reason that most of us don't like dieting. In fact, if, there's, I don't think there's anybody who really likes to diet. Anybody? Raise your hand. Oh, I love it. Yeah, it's good. you like it. Praise God. You know, and... It's what, I'll tell you why. Because the reverse, the, the, what overeating has produced, you have to undereat. Right, right. See, some, some people, all the skinny people are like, what are you talking about? I don't know. <laughs> See, we eat too much. Paul says to buffet your body, but we buffet our bodies, right? So we eat too much and we get too big. And then because we've overeaten, now we have to undereat. And what undereating means that you're going to have to go through seasons of hunger. For me, the hardest thing at night is to go to bed hungry. I want to go to bed with, you know, a nice full belly. I want to rub it and just fall asleep. But, you know, if you do that night after night, you, you get big. And then the, the price tag that you got to pay is when you diet for at least a week or so, getting into the routine, there's going to be times where you're hungry. And none of us like that. You know, I mean, hunger brings uh, reactions to the body. There's hunger pangs. Have you ever had hunger pangs? Sometimes I get so busy, I forget to eat. You know, I have a small breakfast, and then all of a sudden it's 3 o'clock, and my stomach starts talking to me. You know, and you feel that pang, man. There, there's these responses we get. You know, some, some people, if you don't, if my wife has a little window, if you don't feed her between when she's really hungry and a certain point she gets a headache, then she gets hangry. Hangry. Anybody ever been hangry? Right? I remember sitting in a restaurant. They wouldn't even bring us bread. I was starting to lick the silverware. I was hangry. <laughs> But you got to go through that. You got to go through those pangs, right? And hunger brings that. Sometimes people get headaches and, you know, there's emotional and physiological stress. If hunger persists, it leads to malnutrition and starvation, disease and death. What a way to die. There again, something we can't relate to, but the word says here that he wants us to hunger and to thirst for righteousness. Now, if you think hunger is bad, thirst is even worse. Statistics show that the average human being can go three weeks without food. Now, I don't even want to test that out. But you can only go three days without water. We are mostly water. We need water. If we don't hydrate, stay hydrated, we'll quickly die. Jesus says, I want you to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Most of us have never been without water for an extended period of time. I knew a guy who, you know, I mean, we drink all this fancy water, bottled water and sparkling water. And, you know, you go to a fancy restaurant. Would you like this type of water or this type of water? Sparkling, bubbling, fizzing, effervescing. What kind of water would you like? <laughs> just, just put ice in it. Just give me water. Right? But we've never been. And I've known a guy who was running triathlons that would get so thirsty in the middle of the triathlon, he knelt down and drank out of a mud puddle. And he was thankful for it. He was thirsty. You know, the drive for us to have water, the drive for us to have food is a powerful drive. And what Jesus is doing here by using this imagery is he's showing us that, you know, the pursuit that we should have for righteousness shouldn't be a casual pursuit. 
It shouldn't be just a flippant, well, you know, if righteousness prevails, great. If the good guys win, great. If, you know, whatever, I, I don't care. I'm just, you know, kind of doing it. No, we have to have this drive, this hunger, and this thirst for righteousness. It's powerful imagery. It's not the casual pursuit. It's an intense pursuit. It's a drive. And I want you to get that this morning. You know, how passionate are we about seeing the right things prevail? How passionate are we about seeing the right things happen, about righteousness? We're going to talk about this in just a second, but, you know, it's really easy for us to become indifferent towards evil. Does there ever seem like everywhere you turn, things are getting darker, people are getting worse, sin is more, I mean, they're getting more outlandish, more bold, more pushing it down our children's throats, attacking the church. I mean, it just seems to get darker out there. And, you know, I said this in first service, we haven't, as a generation, invented any new sins. You know that? Sometimes people think this is the most sinful it's ever been. Study history. Look back, Rome and Babylon and all of these places. I mean, they're doing the same stuff. And so, I mean, they've been throwing babies in furnaces and dedicating them to idols and all that. And, and we have abortion. It's the same stuff. What I want you to get here, we haven't invented any new sin. But yet it's dark out there and it's easy to become indifferent to that. It's easy to get comfortable with crooked things when crooked stuff is all around us, when nobody has integrity, when no one's doing the right thing, when no one's keeping themselves from marriage, when no one's uh, faithful to their marriage vows, when it's dark. Come on, come on. Come on uh, half a clap, praise God. Don't hurt yourself. Comfortable with crooked stuff. We get desensitized to all the compromise in our culture. So it's easy to become indifferent, to become comfortable, to get desensitized. Yet Jesus says we have to have this strong urge, this strong desire to hunger and to thirst for righteousness. Now, if we're supposed to be passionate and even driven about righteousness, uh, would you say we should probably know what Jesus meant about righteousness? How many would agree that maybe our definition or the world's definition about what's right is different than what Jesus says? What's different than what the Bible says? Did you ever notice? I mean, if you just look at love, God is love. So, you know, he, he's pretty much qualified to define what love is. Yet the world has a different concept of love than the Bible does. So we should know what righteousness is to Jesus. Now, remember I talked about hermeneutics here, interpreting scripture. There's rules to that. Uh, one of the first rules of hermeneutics, let scripture interpret scripture. We go to the Greek word in the New Testament. The, the New Testament wasn't written in English. Amen. Some people look shocked. Well, I saw that Jesus movie and he had a British accent. <laughs> Why do they do that? He who comes to me. Yeah, all right. So, you know, it was written in Greek, translated. Uh, there's Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic in Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament. This is a Greek word, the Greek word used for righteousness here in our text. Now, let me just say the word righteousness appears hundreds of times in the Old Testament and New Testament. It's a very, uh, it's a very powerful theme. Why? Because God is righteous, and God is, embodies righteousness, and he wants his people to. So the Greek word is dikaios, and it means innocence, justice and holiness. If you take in notes this morning, I want you to write those three words down. Dikaios means innocence, 
justice and holiness. And when Jesus said that we should hunger and thirst for righteousness, he's saying we should hunger and thirst for innocence, justice, and holiness. So according to the Greek word, the definition of righteousness kind of plays out like this. It's a strong desire we should have to maintain our innocence, to practice holiness, and to seek justice. Amen? It's a powerful powerful thing that Jesus is seeing here. Maintain our innocence, practice holiness, and seek after justice. Let's take a look at some of those things this morning here. The first is this. If you and I are going to hunger and thirst for righteousness, we have to maintain our innocence. It's quiet. How many people are innocent out there? How many people are guilty? Don't raise your hand. (laughs) Do you ever just walk into a room, maybe you have children, you walk into a room and you look at their faces and go, what did you do? You know, I mean, they got that look on. It's just like, you know, they, they see you and they look like they saw a ghost and like, what did I just catch you doing? You know, it's like, you, you can tell when someone's innocent, you can tell when someone's guilty. And, and the thing is here that the, the scripture teaches us that we as Christians need to maintain our innocence. Christians should be innocent of evil. Paul says about things that were happening in the Corinthian church. God forbid that this should happen. And God forbid. And, and, and there were things happening in the early church. All kinds of, you know, adultery and sexual sin. And, and, and there was stuff going on. And Paul's like, God forbid. Yet there is a sense where Christians need to understand. You and I should remain innocent of evil. Romans 16, 19 says, be excellent at what is good. Be innocent of evil. Come on, are you getting Romans today, amen? This is the Apostle Paul saying, what does that mean, be excellent at what is good? Spend your time and your energy and your talent and your focus doing the right stuff, and you won't have time and energy to do the wrong stuff. That's right. Oh, we know this already, Pastor, but do we practice it? Have we maintained our innocence? You know, we should be ignorant of evil. We shouldn't know about every dark thing that's going on in the world. We shouldn't be ignorant of the devil's devices. We don't have to know everything that the kingdom of darkness is doing and be familiar with it and be comfortable with it. You say, how does that walk out? Hey, did you see that new HBO series? It's pretty racy. Nope. Don't have HBO. Don't want to see it. Hey, did you hear about that new gentleman's club that opened up? Nope. Never been to one. I don't care what goes on there. Hey, did you hear about that new hookup culture, the way it rolls at clubs these days? And you know, do you know, do you know about that? No, I'm ignorant of it. I don't know about that. I don't go there. Hey, did you see that new Fifty Shades sequel? No, nope, didn't see the first one. Not going to see the second one because I don't need that garbage in my life. Amen. Hello? Amen. Hello? Amen. Yet there's Christians who look at all of that garbage and are comfortable with it. And then they wonder why their innocence is gone. There's certain lines that when we cross them, we can't uncross them. There's certain things that when we see them, we can't unsee them. There's things in my my life I wish I'd never saw. There's images that I've looked at that I wish I'd never, there's things that I've done that I wish I've never done. (laughs) And you say, Pastor, you know, we all struggle. We all have different things. Yes, I know. I understand. I'm transparent with you. We all struggle with sin. The truth is, though, we have to learn to maintain our innocence. There are certain things we shouldn't know about. We shouldn't partake of. Why do we know these things? Why why are we comfortable with these things? Jeremiah 4, verses 3 through 4, show us that our hearts can get so worn out and so calloused that they need to be made tender again. 
Jeremiah says to the people of Israel, listen to this. This is the Lord talking to his people through the prophet. For thus saith the Lord to the men of Judah and to Jerusalem, God's people, break up your fallow ground and do not sow among thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord and remove the foreskin of your heart. Men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, or else my wrath will go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of your evil deeds. Wow. He says, circumcise your hearts. What does that mean? It's a cutting away of the flesh it's a, so that it can be sensitive again. Our hearts can get so hard, so calloused because we've lost our innocence. This morning, if we have lost our innocence and we're comfortable with sin and desensitized to it, then we need our innocence restored. Somehow, some way, we have to bring our hearts before the Lord and let him cut away the things of the flesh so that we become tender and sensitive again to the Holy Spirit. Come on, the Holy Spirit's the umpire of your soul. He'll tell you when to stop. He'll tell you when to go. He'll blow the whistle. He'll call fouls. He'll call balls and strikes. Christians need to remain innocent of evil. But there's also another component to this point. Christians should protect the innocence of children. God is very serious about how we treat our children and how we project our children and how we nurture our children. But at the same time, the, the world is such a, a fast-moving place out there that children seem to get swallowed up by our culture. The unfortunate truth is that all too many in our schools, in our government, and in our communities are all too ready to destroy our children's innocence as quickly as possible. There's, it seems that there's a campaign of the enemy to expose children to things that they shouldn't have to deal with at such a young age so that their minds can be kind of swayed and bent towards that thing. They, they teach these things. It seems like from the moment our children go to kindergarten, they're bombarded with all this politically correct nonsense and humanistic garbage, and they're not ready for it. We've got little children being asked, do you want to dress up as a boy or a girl? Do you feel like you should go in this bathroom or that bathroom? We've got parents dressing little boys in dresses because Johnny felt like a girl today. I mean, that's insanity. We, we ask kids, you know, little children about their sexual orientation. Little children don't belong having sex. Why do they need to know their sexual orientation? Come on, church. And there again, you know, as we talk about these things, it seems hard to believe. There's graphic sexual information. There's pornography. You put a phone in a kid's hand at a young age, and he's exposed to all of the worst that the world has at such a young age. Birth control, let's give it to you for free. You want an abortion? You don't have to tell your parents. We'll take you. Secular humanism, propaganda, evolution is a fact, creation is a myth. On and on it goes to our kids can't even be kids anymore. That's why so many of us are, you know, are deciding you know, to put them in Christian schools or homeschool. Why? To protect them from the aggressiveness of this world that wants to tell them everything that this says is wrong and here's how you should think. Wow. I want to say something to this generation, this generation that pushes these things with brazenness, this, this generation that feels like they have the right to define morality for our children, that, that, that they can circumvent the parental authority. Beware. Repent. If not, there's a millstone judgment awaiting for you. That's right. 
Matthew 18, 6, Jesus, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be thrown in the depths of the sea. God takes it very serious with those who try to corrupt the minds of the next generation. Jesus said we'd have to enter as little children into the kingdom. And the reason that children are so special is they're innocent. Woe unto those who try and pervert the innocence of a child. You and I need to avoid evil. You and I need to project the children of this next generation. The second thing I wanna talk to you about, the definition of our Greek word requires us to consider this. If we're gonna hunger and thirst for righteousness, not only do we have to maintain our innocence and protect the innocence of the next generation, you and I need to hunger and thirst for justice. It's quiet now. And the reason it gets quiet now is because our world has polluted and perverted uh, the idea and even the concept of justice to the point to where what this says is, is that is just, we reject, and we have our own justice system that we put in place. Now, I'll just tell you something today. A lot of what passes for justice and social justice and what's right and wrong in our world today is totally unbiblical and it's false. We have people who do all kinds of outlandish things and expect to have no repercussions for their sin, for their crimes, for their wickedness. We have people who just recently in the news, I mean, they just passed laws here in New York State about bail reform. Basically, criminals have a bill of rights now that you and I are now targets. Yes. People can come into our home, rob us, do all kinds of things, and it seems like now the criminals have, some of you don't even know what's going on right now. But just try and protect your home. Just try and defend your family and see that the, the tables could be turned on you. That's right. There was just a person who was uh, a young person went to a store to rob it with a gun, put a gun in the face of the clerk, and the clerk pulled out his gun and shot him. And the parents are up in arms. How dare that clerk have a gun at work? This is the insanity of our generation. That parents would stand up and say, well, my kids need to rob and thieve in a safe environment. Insanity. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's not what God's word says. It's the opposite. And yet somehow, some well, some way we have to be concerned about justice, God's justice, and there's injustice all around us. Look, we can't say we hunger and thirst for righteousness if there's injustice all around us and we ignore it. Well, that didn't touch me. That didn't touch my family. That's not in my neighborhood. I don't have to deal with that, so I don't care. Look, that's not the heart of someone who hungers and thirsts for righteousness. That's the heart of someone who only cares about themselves, and that's not right. And God wants us to be concerned about these things. Three places to seek after justice. Number one, we should seek justice in our interaction with others. Now, I know you were hoping that I wouldn't go here, but I'm going to go there. We got to treat people right. Yes, yes. We have, to, we have to be just in our dealings with others. Now, that's a broad concept, but here, let me flesh it out for you a little bit. If we're dishonest in our business dealings, and we call ourselves Christians, if we're dishonest in our marriages, and we don't keep our marriage vows, and we're not faithful, and we do things that we know we shouldn't, if we don't treat our family right, if we don't treat our neighbors right, if we don't treat our coworkers right, how can we hunger and thirst for righteousness? Listen, married people, you owe your spouse a debt. You owe them your, your time and your attention and your energy and your love. You owe them. If you're out doing other things and you're not fulfilling that, that's unjust. 
You have children, you owe those children something to love them, to provide them, to nurture them, to not, not just pay money for them, but to spend time with them. Right. If you're out doing everything else and you're neglecting that, that's unjust. If you don't treat your family right, your coworkers right, you, you, you know, I mean, we think about it, we think, well, I'm just, you know, I can do whatever I want because it's all about me. That's unjust. Yeah. Oh, there should be less people here next week, I know. But I'm just preaching it the way it lays. And you and I need to have justice in the way we treat others. God's watching. Treat others according to scripture. Be above the boards in your business practices. Be good to your spouse. Be faithful to your marriage vows. Treat your children right. Be faithful to the house of God. Can I get one amen or I'm just going to keep going? <laughs> we should yearn for justice in the way we treat people. And if we're treating people unjustly, we need to make adjustments. Number two, we should long for justice in our government and in our legal system. It's amazing. Uh, our, the politicians in our governmental system have become so brazen. They categorically disregard and break laws, do whatever they want, and they have no fear of getting caught or being held accountable. No one gets arrested. No one goes to jail. I'll tell you, when the Americans start jailing some of these corrupt politicians, that's when we're going to have faith in our system again, and it needs to happen. We need to be praying for our government. It's no longer we send representatives there to represent us. It's like they, they've turned it into their own thing to suppress us and take our rights away and to lord over us and to tax us to death. <laughs> if you're not clapping, I pray your taxes go up. If you're not voting, I don't want to hear you complain. Wow. We need to pray for our government. It's like the corruption is third world at some points, and it's amazing how the media and the, the, just the apathy of the American people allows this to continue. And let me tell you something, it's a stench in the nostril of God's, the unjust scales, the injustice of it all. We should be praying for justice in our court systems. Justice is supposed to be blind. Justice is supposed to be equal for everyone. Justice is supposed to treat the rich and the poor, the black and the white, the young and the old the same. And I wanna tell you something, sadly it does not. Well, this, I believe this country and this justice system in our government is one of the greatest systems ever to be on the earth, but it has a lot of room for improvement. Yeah. And for us to look and say, you know what, well, you know, that's not, that didn't touch my house. That's not hungering and thirsting for righteousness. I think about America pre-World War II when our president got up there and said, you know, America with its righteous might would fight back against what happened at Pearl Harbor. And I think, could we even say that anymore? That we have righteous might. Wow. There's a righteous remnant in this country, but there's a deep root of wickedness here that the church need to be praying about. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness means justice in our interactions with others. It means justice in our government and our legal system. And number three, it means justice from the hand of God. There are certain things that we are not gonna see man resolve in the earth. Right. We're gonna have to wait God to bring justice. Man is not gonna solve every problem, amen? It's not a politician, it's not a movement, it's not a one world government, no, those things. Man is never gonna solve all of these crooked things. There is a sense where we have to wait for God to come and bring justice through Jesus Christ when he rules the nations with a rod of iron. Come on, church, act like you believe what I'm saying, amen? 
2 Timothy 4.1, I charge thee therefore by God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and at his kingdom. Jesus will come and he will be the judge and he will straighten out all the crooked things. There are things that happen all around us that are crooked, that are unjust, that are just, they're a travesty, yet somehow, some way they slip through. Justice Horace Gray, a Supreme Court justice, once said this to a man who appeared before him in a lower court and had escaped conviction through a technicality. The justice said this, I know you are guilty, and you know you're guilty, and I wish you to remember that one day you will stand before a better and wiser judge, and there you will be dealt with according to justice and not escape by a technicality. Wow. That's a right heart for a judge. To realize there's, there's a judge that's better than us. Men need to realize there's a judge higher than our judgment. And all of us are going to stand before him. The wicked will stand before the great white throne judgment. The, the Christian will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. But judgment awaits. So you and I, if we hunger and thirst for righteousness, we have to be concerned about justice. We can't be blind to injustice. We can't just ignore it because it doesn't touch us but we should be prayerful about it. Otherwise, we're not hungry enough and we're not thirsty enough for righteousness. Number three, the last thing I wanna cover today, according to our definition, is that hungering and thirst for righteousness means practicing holiness. Now, it's dead quiet. You said, Pastor, the first two points exhausted me. Now you wanna talk about holiness. I like the intro, but this is going downhill fast. You see, Notice I said we need to practice holiness because none of us are, have perfected holiness. So we need to practice it, amen? How do you get good at something? Practice, practice right? And so you and I, if we hunger and thirst for righteousness means we need to practice holiness. You and I can't say we yearn for righteousness and at the same time practice unrighteousness. Think about that for a second. Oh, God, come and make everything that's crooked straight. And God says, oh, Rick, I want to start with you. Oh, God, I'll get back to you later. <laughs> no, you see, we can't practice unrighteousness and at the same time yearn for God to bring righteousness. Right. You see, we don't like to talk about this because we like that us and them mentality. Oh, we're righteous because of Jesus and we are. We're going to talk about that. But, you know, it's not us, it's them. Sometimes it's us. Yep, yep. I got one yep and no amens and a lot of dirty looks, which only encourages me. Amen. <laughs> we can't practice unrighteousness and yearn for righteousness at the same time. It's the pinnacle of hypocrisy for us to relish the thought of God coming and hammering all the unrighteous and making the crooked things straight while simultaneously expecting him to ignore our crooked things. It's the broken heart of God's people that would say, you know what, God, let revival begin with me. Like David said, search me and know me and see if there be any wicked way in me. Wow, that's the right heart. 
I want to talk about holiness today. And remember, we said we're practicing holiness. But scripturally, from a theological perspective, there are two types of holiness we need to know about. One is positional holiness, and one is personal holiness. Positional holiness comes as a result of what Jesus did on the cross at Calvary. Let me explain it to you. Positionally, if we are in Christ today, if we belong to him, what does that mean? You've accepted Jesus as Savior and Lord. You've confessed your sin. You repent, and you're born again. How many people? are in Christ today. If you're in Christ today, that means positionally you are holy. When God looks at you, he doesn't look and say, oh, there's, you know, there's Rick all messed up and disheveled and, and wrong thoughts and his clothes don't match and he's a mess. No, when he looks at me, he sees Jesus. And when he looks at you, he sees Jesus. And the blood of Jesus covers us. So positionally, we're holy. That's why he can say we're saved. That's why he can write our names in the Lamb's book of life. That's why he can call us his children, his people, and give us the promise of the Holy Spirit. Because positionally, we're holy. But yet, in practicality, there's also the, the idea of personal holiness. How many know even though positionally we're holy, a lot of times the way we act is not holy? I'll just point at myself. It seems like just five minutes in traffic and I am unholy. There are so many idiots with driver's licenses. It's amazing. My wife's a real good driver. You know, she grew up in Saskatchewan chasing cows with a pickup trucks. So, you know, roads are no problem with her. But I mean, we just drive around and it's just like people going backwards, people in the wrong lane, people going 30 when you're supposed to be going 65. I mean, are you kidding me? So, you know, Pastor Mike's getting, he needs deliverance, right? I mean, so it doesn't take much to set us off at times and see that, you know, we need to work on that personal holiness component. Now, Hebrews 12, 14 says, follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man will see the Lord. Oh my goodness, I need holiness or I'm not going to see the Lord. That's Christ's positional holiness. Right. Jesus said, unless your holiness surpass that of the Pharisees and Sadducees, you will not see the kingdom of heaven. That's Jesus's positional holiness. Our holiness, our striving, our works, our willingness to conform to the image of Jesus Christ doesn't save us. The blood of Jesus does. But our personal holiness shows that we're saved and produces fruit in our lives and makes our lives better here while we're on earth. Why? Because look, if I'm a Christian and I'm unholy, I'm going to have the consequences of that holiness, unholiness touch me because I still reap what I sow. Are you getting this? It's not that you're getting kicked out of heaven. It's not that God's revoking your salvation. It's the fact that, you know, you are not cooperating with the Holy Spirit to be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. So spiritually, you're immature, you're a baby, and God wants to produce adults. He wants to produce Christians that look like Jesus. We have to submit to the Holy Spirit. We have to conform to the work of Christ. That, why? Because he's transforming us. Be not conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove. Come on, you know the scripture. So there's a transformation that needs that. Well, how does that happen? We have to embrace it. The Holy Spirit doesn't, you know, you know tackle us and, 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 and get on top of us and force us, gets our, our arm behind our back and go, all right, Leonardo, this is it. You're going to submit now. Perfect gentleman. Yes, yes, yes. 
you know, we can either submit to the Holy Spirit and produce fruit, or we can go kicking and screaming and fight against it and have a real hard time. But either way, he's going to produce holiness in us. I'd rather cooperate. How about you? You know, many Christians just rest in the, in the positional holiness and that's good enough for them and they don't care to harness their life or to submit to the Holy Spirit and allow themselves to be groomed. And so we, we have this clash within our spiritual walk that is confusing to others who are watching on the outside. Well, I know you love God and I know you talk about Jesus, but you know, the way you act, I, I, I think you're worse than me. God help us when we're worse than the world around us. I want to give you a spiritual life lesson to conclude this topic and to conclude this message. And it's a spiritual life lesson that comes from a rodent. In the forests of Northern Europe and Asia lives a little animal called the ermine, known for its beautiful white winter coat of fur. If you see these things, they look like oversized weasels with beautiful white coats. Ermine instinctively protect their fur against anything that would soil it. To capture an ermine, the indigenous people didn't shoot them or snare them or trap them, but instead they found their dens where they made their home, usually in the cleft of a rock or a hollow tree, and they just smeared the entrance of the den with filth and grime. Dogs were then set loose to chase the ermine down. The animals instinctively fleed back to their dens, but because the den was filthy and smeared with filth, they would not enter their dens and they were easily caught standing in front of their dens. Rather than soil its beautiful fur, the ermine chose to preserve its purity and be captured instead. I wonder if we took personal holiness as serious as that little rodent, how much holier we would be that we would refuse to soil ourselves with the grit and the filth of the world and allow ourselves to be captured by the Holy Spirit and conform to the image of Christ. God, give us a desire to maintain our purity. Help us to avoid sin and evil. And Father, not to cross lines that we know we shouldn't cross. Help us to be just in the way we deal with others and to remain innocent of evil and to protect the minds of this generation and the children from the evil of this world. Help us, Lord, to care about justice, to seek after it, to yearn for righteousness in how we deal with others in our legal system, in our government, and from the hand of God that we would wait on the Lord to make crooked things straight. But Lord, work on the crookedness of our hearts. Make us a church without spot or wrinkle. I ask it in Jesus' name. And the church said, amen. Amen. Amen.